Thank you so much for joining our Gen Church Wa podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022. We have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these opportunities, these events, these gatherings, head over to mygenerations.church to check them out. So what does it mean to be spiritual? How does followership of Jesus look in an era of postmodernism and deconstruction? We're getting back into our series on 1 Corinthians called Masterclass, where the Apostle Paul will help us navigate our cultural moment. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together. But we're going to continue in our series on Masterclass. If I remember right, we are in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 23. And this is what it says. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, Eat everything that is set before you, without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, don't eat it. Out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized? Because of something for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, as we gather this morning, I pray that we see you, hear you, know that you are present with us tangibly this morning. In our conversations we have, in the songs that we sing, in the messages that we hear, God, you are speaking to us. Allow us to glorify you, to praise you, and give thanks as we spend time together with the family to gather, to worship, and celebrate, God, what you are doing and the big plans that you have for us. God, some things seem so big and unreachable, but God, you've brought us so far. God, continue to take us further. God, you lead and guide us, not by our own wisdom, but God, by your Holy Spirit speaking to us and giving us wisdom and how to go forward from here. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Welcome back to Masterclass. If you give a mouse a cookie, (laughs) is a fun and cautionary tale. I've seen how many of you have read that book recently or maybe have kids and have covered that. It's a pop and cult... Uh, you know, cultural book about how a single action causes a chain of seemingly inevitable responses. If you give a mouse a cookie, he will ask for a glass 
of milk. While this childhood book is lighthearted, along with its numerous spin-offs, give a moose a muffin, give a dog a donut, give a pig a pancake, the seemingly inevitability of response teaches us a valuable lesson. You never know what's on the other side of someone's if, because then. Now, the Corinthians have had their own version of this game, of this inevitability, if you can call it that. For them, they had conflicting answers to their if-then propositions. If you give a Corinthian a piece of meat sacrificed to an idol, then they would feel guilty because it reminded them of their old way of living. Or, if you attended a feast at the temple, then you were proving your freedom in Christ. And they wanted to know if this if-then was accurate and how they should think about their daily interactions with various pieces of life, of culture. Specifically, if they attended a barbecue, could they eat the meat? Or did they need to be vegan? Paul has strong answers, shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And before he can get to their behaviors, he must address their faulty beliefs, so that out of their belief come behaviors. And so let's catch up on the argument thus far. Here's that previously on. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul established two principles. First, an idol really is nothing. The piece of wood or stone that people were sacrificing to is really nothing. It was fine for the Corinthian Christians who understood uh, this to act according to this knowledge in regard to themselves. Second, for Christians... Love is more important than knowledge. So even though I may know eating meat sacrificed to an idol is all right for myself, if it causes my brother to stumble, I won't do it. Because it isn't the loving thing to do. And Paul anticipates the pushback of the Corinthians. Therefore, he shares a personal illustration followed by a scriptural illustration as he works towards the deeper issue. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul shares this personal and scriptural illustration showing how important it is for Christians to give up their rights just as Paul gave up his right to be supported by his own preaching. So some of the Corinthian Christians must sometimes give up their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols based on the principle of love towards the weaker brother or sister. And in the end of chapter 9, Paul showed how a Christian must be willing to give up some things, even good things, for the sake of winning the race God has set before them. And last week's teaching, Paul's conclusion is that the first part of winning the race that God has set before us is that the Corinthians should flee from idolatry. If you really intend to flee from idolatry, then we must first name our idols. 
Because sometimes when we get into this conversation, when we think about idolatry and idols, we walk around and go, I'm not sure I see anything made of wood or stone that I'm necessarily sacrificing a goat or a lamb or a cow or giving up time, energy, talents for. But what we realize is that anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you, what only God can give is an idol. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. We fill in that blank with many things. If I have this, then my life will be better, easier, I'll feel more safe or secure. If this just happens, then I'll be good. And any time that we fill in that blank with something other than Jesus, we set ourselves up not only for failure, but we settle, we settle for life lived as less than human. Because inevitably, we will do whatever it takes to, fill in, to achieve what we fill in that blank with and ultimately and always, what we do is we say we are worshiping, we are valuing, we are ascribing worth to that thing. And that thing wants to pull at our heart to provide a level of attachment that ultimately has us live life as less than human. And when our attachment to these idols are greater than our attachment to Christ, we will always settle for that lesser version of humanity. And you will have to deconstruct the greater attachments in your life. You might have to unplug from the matrix to understand what life is really like. Lived with God, live for people. However, if we only deconstruct, then we will only be sitting in a pile of rubble. We must also construct a life with God and for others. And to this end, Paul now says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. This is more than pragmatic. The Corinthian Christians focus on their own rights and knowledge. And the object of their fo focus was themselves and the perceived limits. What can I get away with? Where's the line? Because if I can get right up to the line and still feel good, still achieve something, still feel comfortable, still have some measure of success, then I'm all right. I'll be good. What can I get away with and still be considered good? In our hearts and minds, there are all kinds of actions that we hedge on. When someone asked me earlier this week, so Kyle, who do you got in the Super Bowl? I have a notorious habit for giving two answers. If this happens, then this is who's going to win. I like to hedge my bets, so to speak. We do that in our own lives, where we kind of hedge our bets, where we try to figure out the line, where we try to present multiple options, where we try to prescribe something that allows us 
to both serve or worship or be attached to both Christ and something else. And the Corinthians, in doing so, in trying to maintain these other attachments, they didn't consider the effects of their actions on others. See, that's the reality, is when we are attached to other things, other than fully attached to Christ, when the greater attachments weigh in in our life than the greatest attachment that we should have with Christ, it inevitably causes harm and sin and destruction in the lives of others. Your sin does not happen in isolation. Your attachment to other things has an effect on others. But what determines which tool you use in the situation, in your deconstruction and in your reconstruction in front of you, in the image of the final product? What tool you use must be given and guided by God? And how do you know which tool to use? How do you know where you need to deconstruct and where you need to reconstruct rightly? Paul says, for the death of Christ, in which he gave himself for us, is not only God's offer of cleansing for us, but also the only proper model of everyday life attached to God. See, the tool, how we determine the tool that we use, must always be filtered, must always start with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Hence, freedom does not mean to seek what pleases me, not even my own good. Rather, it means to be free in Christ in such a way that one can truly seek to benefit and build up another person. Freedom in Christ is not freedom from attachment. Rather, it's freedom from your attachment with Christ so that you can live in such a way where the ultimate is not pleasure, power, control, or approval. But the ultimate is being attached so much to Christ that as you look at the lives of others, that as you build relationships, as you spend time, you are working for their good. That you see them as God sees them and you say, how do I help them become more like Christ? As you are becoming more like Christ and that attachment is fueling and powering. So unplug from the other attachments so you can be plugged into Christ, so that as you are fueled in that, you can rightly power other relationships in good and healthy ways, so that when you choose action in those relationships, when you're trying to navigate difficult situations, the tool at your disposal, the power behind that tool is Christ, and shows you what it looks like to live and love well. And so if we are to become what we are in Christ, then we must help others become what they are in Christ. The principle is clear in Paul's mind. It's edification over gratification. When you choose, how do I interact with others? When you choose, how do I know what the right tool to employ here is? It's edification, which is a building term. It's how do I build up that other person over gratification. So you're talking about build up over personal pleasure. You're, tr- you're talking about uh, exercising love and care, working, taking time, energy to make sure that person's well-being is sought over what you might get out of it. If you look at some of our values, they could be expressed in that similar way. Give over get. Spirit over self. That's edification over gratification. 
And for Paul, here's how edification over gratification shows up. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. And though Paul warned about attending temple feasts before, he's saying that atmosphere of fellowship with demons at the pagan temple, what is to be avoided is those type of atmospheres, not the food itself. So then, of course, you can go to the market and get your bone-in ribeye. The sacrifices lost their religious character when sold in the meat market. So it was permitted to eat meat that may have been sacrificed to an idol at a private table. Edification over gratification shows up that you can ask no questions. That if any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner, then you can eat freely what is set before you. Because all good things come from God. Paul even cites Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Which means sometimes we draw lines that say this should be off limits. But if everything is God's and he is the one true Lord of all, then we can enter in and we can enjoy good things that he gives us. Like a warm cup of coffee. (laughs) After a long night. We can enjoy that. And that just the enjoyment of that doesn't mean we're worshiping it. But we can recognize that just the small and simple things in life are blessings because it's his and all that's in it so that when you are purposeful about your relationships and your kind of conscience gets a little stirred how do i know whether it's right or whether it's good you can practice what is edifying over what is personally gratifying paul says how this shows up again is if anyone says to you this was offered to idols do not eat it here paul has in mind the setting where christian is warned about the food by his unbelieving host or a Christian with host with a sensitive conscience. In that case, it's clear that a person thinks it is wrong for Christians to partake of meat sacrificed to idols, so don't eat it for the sake of conscience. Not your own, but that of the other. Amen. Hopefully you're hearing the theme that as you try to determine what course of action to take in your daily faith, when you're at meals, when you're at work, when you're at the gym, when you're trying to make a decision in business, For the Christian, it's, is my action building up someone else to become more like Jesus? Or or am I seeking my own personal well-being first? Again, these aren't mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. Because here's the kicker. It's when you actually build up others, when you actually invest in others, when you actually help them become more like Christ, you actually experience the personal fulfillment and calling that God has for you so that you actually get gratified. You actually feel fulfilled. You've experienced that when you show up after a long night and you show up early to serve or whether it's at a, a, a shelter or a soup kitchen or help a friend move or you, you've had a long day at work and you're like, I just want to go home and sleep, but someone just needs you to be a listening ear. And you can take that time to just be present with them. See, when you give up what you desire, maybe it's sleep or food or time or money or energy. When you are willing to say, I do value these things, but I'm willing to set them aside for a moment so that I can care and love for someone else to help them become more like Christ. Because in doing so, then what usually happens is the eternal power charger, the internal generator kicks in. I don't know about you, but I can tell you many experiences where I thought I was out of gas. 
And God says, you need to show up and be present in this way. And then the end result is I had more energy after that interaction than before. And what Paul is saying is if we have edification over gratification in our mind, specifically he's talking to the Corinthians about how do they interact with eating of meat. And that may seem like a distant idea. But at the end of the day, for us, when we put that into practice, in everything we can do, we can give thanks. Maybe it's eating meat with a clear conscience, without offending others. And that when we see people in our church do this, that we don't judge them in a negative light, and we trust that the Holy Spirit is alive and working in them, and saying, that you know what they're doing? They're putting their best foot forward to build up someone else. Because how that might look for them might look different for you. But we can trust and be built up together that the Holy Spirit is working in all of our lives to help us be constructed into the people that God is calling us to be. Because it even seems like, Paul, are you being inconsistent here? But he's being very consistent according to the one principle. Liberty within the limits of love. Your attachment to Christ gives you cause to act but it also sets limits. And as we look at this, Paul is super clear on what to do. As we consider the challenge, the challenge in our modern minds, we believe that everyone belongs to themselves and we belong to ourselves. Alan Noble and You Are Not Your Own provides this analogy. He says, zucosis. Say that with me real quick. Say zucosis. Try to say it. Zucosis. Okay. I, I, yeah, I had to have you say it to make sure I could say it again correctly. Zucosis is, a, is the common term for the thing that lions do at the zoo when they obsessively pace back and forth in their cages. The technical term is stereotypes, typees, something like that. See, I can't even say that word. It's like we're, we're, we're getting to some heavy words here. Essentially, it's repetitive and variant behavior patterns with no obvious goal or function, which occur in captive animals. But zoocosis is a portmanteau of zoo and psychosis. It's much less a euphemism and sterile than stereotypes. There are animals driven to psychosis from being in captivity. Despite the best efforts of zookeepers to recreate the animal's natural environment, a zoo is still a zoo. The lion is still caged. People still point, stare at it, and take photog- photographs all day long. The lion still smells of churros and hot dogs cooking. He still hears the cries of animals that belong on entirely different continents. He still sleeps in what smells like an artificial cave. His meals, while scientifically engineered to meet his dietary needs, never satisfy his desire to hunt. And with the noise of people and the sights of concrete fences and bars, he feels both exposed and alone. His anxiety is really quite natural. The zoo exhibit was not built for the lion. Well, okay, technically the zoo was made for him. In fact, some of the top African lion experts probably designed his habitat and diet. These scientists know more facts about lions than he knows about himself. 
He knows only the urgings of his own instincts. But the scientists know the history of his entire species, the intricate workings of his internal organs, the latest research on behavior of African lions, and yet he still paces back and forth, day after day. Still, the habitat does not feel quite right. Yes, the space was made for a lion, but not this lion, or even an African lion. It was made for a lion that probably doesn't exist, one who naturally is at home in a cage. And no matter how the zookeepers modify and optimize the habitat, they will always assume that he is the kind of creature who can live a good life confined in the middle of a zoo, in the middle of a city, on a foreign continent. A tool to bring people, entertainment, and education. The lion's best hope is to adapt to his new environment and produce offspring whose only understanding is captivity. When we finally see a lion that was bred in captivity, we cannot help but think of it almost as a lesser lion. It's a zoo lion. And then we feel sorry for the lion. Sorry that the drive to capture and contain in our hearts and understand and display all the wonders of the earth has perverted one of those wonders. The glorious and majestic lion that roams the safari, that is made to hunt, to capture, to rule, to be free, is confined. A shell of itself. Something has been lost. But that's the best case scenario that scientists and experts create a habitat right for it. But it's more likely that the zoocosis continues. You have certainly almost wit- all witnessed animals in the zoo with this behavior. Even if you didn't know the term, there you go, the notes for today, zoocosis. And perhaps you found yourself caught up short before the pacing animal thinking. And that poor beast, Alone, captive, I'm not sure it belongs here. Although we are not caged in the same way lions at the zoo, contemporary people in the West often suffer from our own kind of zoocosis. Just like the lion, our anxiety stems from living in an environment that was not actually made for us, for humans as we truly are. The designers, who happen to be us, by the way, Only humans are capable of creating inhuman environments for themselves. Had a particular idea of human person in mind when they created the modern world. Before you can build a habitat for humans, you must have an idea of what humans are. What do they do? How do they live? Why do they live? What do they need? Where do they belong? And when you can answer these questions... You can begin to design institutions, economies, practices, values, and laws accordingly. The building blocks of a society, we can construct a world well. In some ways, history is the story of civilizations misunderstanding anthropology in one way or another, leading to terrible results. Modern society has misinterpreted humans and the implications of that false anthropology, that's dire. Most people understand that society is inhuman in basic ways, that we live in a habitat ill-suited for us. 
but like the fate of the lion in the zoo. The progression of society feels determined. Even if we object to the way the lion is treated, what can we do to stop it? As we look at our world, as we think of our environments, are we participating in the construction of a world that helps people understand what full humanity is like? Think of your everyday experience. Self-checkout is a little less human than interacting with a cashier, but stores have to cut costs to remain competitive. Objectifying the human body is degrading, but you can't stop people from viewing pornography. Consuming poorly made products is depressing, but if they weren't poorly made, we couldn't afford them. Filling our days with tedious labor soothed by streams of entertainment is boring, but what's the alternative? It's ridiculous to feel validated because an attractive person gives you attention, or even more so when the attention comes in a digital space like Instagram. But the likes feel affirming, like you've done something well. The healthcare industry should want people to live healthy lives and get the care they need, but nobody blames them for primarily caring about profitability. That's the free market, we say. Mechanization and standardization of education ignores the uniqueness of every student. But education is expensive enough as it is. We find ways to justify, to hedge our bets, because we think that it's too difficult, too raw, too unattainable to construct a world that is more human. This is the plea of Paul. To build a world with God for others. As the community of the church. To understand that in our everyday life. We're able to take steps. Towards building up each other. And a world that becomes more human. More like Christ. The way God designed it. Not of our own strength and our own power. But plugged into the internal power source that is God. To give us tactical and practical ways to choose the well-being of others versus our own self-worth and self-being, our own self-centeredness. And so we resign ourselves to the progress that we ourselves are designing. We've created a society based on the assumption that we are our own and belong to ourselves, that the highest good for every person is their own gratification. But if this anthropology is fundamentally wrong, then we should expect people to suffer from their malformed habitat. And that is precisely what we discover. The difference between us and the lion is that we are more successful at treating our zucosis and adapting to our environment. We don't mind pacing back and forth, especially if we listen to a podcast while we do it. Once we accept that our contemporary anthropology is fundamentally flawed and produces an inhuman society that can never fulfill its promises, we're left to cast about for an alternative. If we are not our own and do not belong to ourselves, whose are we? To whom do we belong? These questions make all the difference 
Historically, the Christian church has answered these questions by first looking at a claim the Apostle Paul makes clear back in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Every day you have the opportunity to make choices that build a world, that build a life, that help people see a better and beautiful picture that is a world with God for others. And when we attempt to construct a world in which we think that we can have the answers, then we just build a zoo for ourselves as if we were the lions. Rather, we are to live in attachment to the one who has all the answers, who has the ability to provide guidance and wisdom to best love people in any and every circumstances. It's not about testing the limits or defining the limits. It's about living with God for others. Paul says, do all for the glory of God so that they may be saved. How you live is less about you. It's more about others. And that is love. The word glory holds the devotion, of the, the, the devotion of weight. And when you choose that the response that you have in any and every situation in your life, the object that should hold the most weight to tip the scales in favor of action that builds others into what they are is God. Love requires presence. Love cannot always be looking ahead to the left or the right. Love requires us to be still and take joy in the goodness of the moment. And if we are not our own but belong to Christ, that's exactly what we are free to do. You don't have to hurry. You don't have to panic. You don't have to be fearful. You don't have to acquire more. You don't have to weigh your options and consider what you might be missing out on. You're free to be present, to attend to the gift in front of you, the person, the people, whether it's your spouse, your child, a song, a pleasant talk with a friend, or the wind in the trees. Of course, when you do that, it's not efficient. Efficiency demands that we always pursue the best options available. It asks, can I use this time more productively? productively. I love to be productive. I like to be efficient. We ask questions like, is this the best person to marry? Can't my child do better than this? Is it the best career for me? And looking at the tree, is it a good use of my time when I haven't emailed my manager yet? But that's precisely the point. The reign of technique, the efficiency, the desire to think what is the best good for my own life, for myself, robs us of the gifts God gives us and leaves us in an inhuman environment. But if we are not our own, then there can be and are higher values than efficiency. There are high values, higher values than pleasure. Values like love, gratitude, beauty, and goodness then it turns out that delighting in the gift you have is far more freeing than desiring any improper gift you can imagine. The band's going to come forward, and we're going to begin moving into a time of worship and response. And this time that we go into each and every week, when we sing these songs, we are surrendering our, our will, our knowledge, that often leads to pride, that says, we want to ascribe worth and value to you alone, O oh God. 
Because at the bottom of the day, we tend to be selfish. And that we want the right to do as I please to do. But love and freedom lead to edification. They are ultimately Christian behavioral values because the bottom line is the benefit of someone else, that they may be saved. And to this end, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And let me conclude by asking, which Savior are you imitating in your daily life? Which Savior? When we sing these songs, what we are saying is we, we want Jesus to be the one true Savior. That we are saying no to the God, the, 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 the slave master of approval. No to the God, the slave master of control. No to the God, the slave master of money. And yes to Jesus. Do what you will in our life. Change us from the inside out. We want to be attached to you. No, we are attached to you. Change us, transform us. Take us where you want us. And if you live attached to Christ, then you will live, you will love by putting edification over gratification in your daily life. So let's go ahead and stand and sing and say these words together. That Jesus, we choose you Build in us so that you can build through us to build a world that is more human, that is more beautiful and good. Let us sing these words together.